Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Sunday Morning Poetry. I'm Kirk Barbera, and today we're going to discuss The Two April Mornings by William Wordsworth. And we're going to start really getting into, with this one, a little bit more of the complex poetry that Wordsworth put forth. Now, I wanted to kind of give you an argument as to why you should stick around and, and listen. You can listen on the podcast if you know if you just want audio and you don't want to look at the video as well, which is fine. It'll work just fine. I read the poems and we usually I'll read it maybe even twice. We'll go through it a little bit. So you'll really get a feel for this poem if you pay attention and you just listen. Um, and if you want to watch, you can go on Facebook or TroubadourMag.com. There's a little place there under shows and there's Sunday morning poetry and you can check out the shows there. And there I'll have on screen not only my, you know, beautiful mug, but also we'll have the poem itself pop up so you can read along. And I do recommend reading along. I think it definitely is beneficial. It's helpful, um, but it's not 100% necessary. I, try, or I do my best to make it so you don't have to do that if, if you can't do that if you're driving or whatever. So anyway, I hope you'll also go to Spotify or iTunes and subscribe give this a rating. It very much helps me get found by other people if you give this a rating and, you know, kind of uh, spread the word about Sunday Morning Poetry and, and Troubadour Podcasts in general. But one of the reasons, so I'm trying to make it as easy as possible for you to to kind of just enjoy a poem. This this week, we're going to do two April, The Two April Mornings by William Wordsworth. And this is you know, like I said, it's a little bit more complex, even though on the surface it looks disarmingly simple. And we're going to talk about things like metaphor, analogy, simile, not in the um, school teacher way, or not too much in the school teacher way, where it's like, you know, here's what a simile is, here's the definition, here's what an analogy is, here's and here's the definition. Instead, what I'd like to do is go down to the essence, the nature of what metaphors and analogies are, because this poem, in fact, is about that in some relationship. He makes a relationship between a you know himself, an old man, and the old man to an, a previous experience, and then with that previous experience, a a, a metaphor for metaphors themselves, and what a metaphor is, and and also what metaphors lack. So, in order to really understand what a metaphor and analogy, a simile, you know or comparison is it's helpful to know what they lack and where they're, they're, there's a line that they don't go far enough or they're, they're incapable of certain things. Now, why is it important to think about what a simile and a metaphor and an analogy is? And most of you might think, well, I don't, you know, it's, I'm not a writer. I, you know, I don't need to do things like that. I disagree. I think if you're a human, you need to be good with comparisons for a couple of reasons, but I'll tell you the fundamental reason. It's essential, or a major part at the very least, of thought, of thinking, of the action of thinking. Now, I like to differentiate between what goes on in the brain, in your head, I, sh I should say, what goes on in your mind on a regular basis, and thinking. I, I believe that they are two fundamentally different activities. So what goes on in my head most of the time, and I can imagine what goes on in your head most of the time, and what go the reason I can imagine that is because I've seen the introspective nature of geniuses, and they have the same kind of 
you know, inanities, blandness, emptiness, random, you know, unintegrated, uninteresting, bad observations, sloganistic phrases going through their heads that I do and that I'm pretty sure you do too. And so if, if, if this is the nature of a genius's mind on a normal day, then I can imagine, you know, unless you're some kind of super genius, that it's also the nature of your mind. Now, one argument I would make, so this is important for thinking. So in other words, if you want to understand the world that you live in and understand yourself, so if you want to understand your, the people around you, if you want to understand your boss, your coworkers, you know, why does this person do the things that they do? Why is it, you know, it seems like such a mystery to you. You know, why does the world and the society we live in, you know, it feels like such a mystery. And why do you feel so certain things? Why do you react so vehemently to certain things? Why do you yell when you don't want to yell, when you reflect later, like, why did I get so mad about that? Or why does this thing make me cry? Or why does this thing make me laugh? Things that most people don't really think too much about. But it's important to think about those things to be able to, uh, you know, have a sense of yourself. So you want that, you want to have a better sense of yourself and a little bit of an understanding about other other people. But let me give you a, a, a actual, more practical reason why metaphor simile analogies are important. And metaphors are dominantly created in poetry and literature, but especially in poetry, I think. Poetry is metaphorical language, and we'll talk a little bit about this. And, you know, it's, it's comparison is a major tool within the poetic toolbox. There's a metaphor for you. Um, so one reason is it, whatever you, is your career, whatever your career is, you need to be able to persuade people. So if you're in sales, that's, that's obvious. You need to be able to persuade people. It's your job to take people by the hand nicely. So take them by the hand and take them from a no to a yes. There's another metaphor. And um, that's that taking by the hand. You're not literally taking them by the hand, but you can visualize that. So I'm going to be trying to use metaphors as much as possible here um, so you can get an idea. But that, that idea of taking them from a no, you know, into through the, the pathway, the journey from a no and walking hand in hand with them to a yes, that's a major part of your job. And there's a lot of things you could do from that. You know, bad salesmen will will take people by the throat from a no to a yes, right? That's a bad way. You don't want to do that. You want to go hand in hand, you know, in a gentle relationship with the person. Those are the best salespeople that take you from a no to a yes, right? And that that help guide you when necessary. But, you know, and in another way, maybe that you are, you know, also in charge of your own path as well. It's not them dragging you. It's you're kind of going hand in hand. Maybe you're walking side by side rather than hand in hand. What? Whatever. This is some of the flaws in metaphors. It doesn't do everything. So we're going to talk about that. You know, one metaphor can't do everything in terms of explaining an idea or, or getting exactly the relationship you want. So that, you know, um, that, that's one aspect of metaphors. But in sales, for instance, you need to be good at, at persuasion. So you need to be good with words. So you need to be good with giving people comparisons by which they can hold in their mind and convince themselves of what you're trying to sell to them. Whatever it is you're trying to sell to them, you need to paint a picture. Right? It, pick up any sales book, and, and anybody who's been in sales, and you know, if you know my career, I've had a long career in sales in my past, you know, and, and mostly one-on-one -on -one sales. I did four years selling knives in people's homes, and it's so important 
do, you know, because everyone, almost everyone starts off as a no. Like the vast majority of people or a big chunk of people say, I'm not, I'm not really interested in buying. And, you know, you need to take them to a yes. So, and there's a whole journey in doing that. And one of the ways is to help them paint a picture of, you know, if I'm selling knives, I want her, the 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 wife, because she's usually the one who makes the decision uh, in this, in you know, kitchen cutlery. I want her to see herself using the knives and saving her time, money, and, and effort down the line. And also giving her, you know, depending on the type of person she is, prestige. And the way I do that is... You know, I, I help paint a, paint a picture with words. I, in talking to her, I listen to the type of person she is. And then I, you know, and, and the type of person he is. So, and then I help them paint a story in their own minds. So my job is not just merely to spout words at them, but to get them to, you know, um, integrate it by, you know, for instance, subtle ways of getting them to repeat the sentence or, or the, you know, some fact or important point that I want them to do. Because when they do, then it gets integrated into their minds. And then when they go, you know, tell them, talk about it later, they are using my words to each other and to their friends. And then they're also convincing themselves and so on and so forth. So that's just a simple example of metaphors, language used to persuade people to take some action that you want them to using, you know, these, these tools. So the better you get with it, the better you are at that technique. And this is true in anything of your career. If you think of just persuasion as an incredible, you know, and even if you're, you know, uh, if you think of yourself as just a cubicle worker who, you know, works on some component as an engineer, you know, you get schematics of some sort and you, you rarely ever integrate or interact with people. Well, if you want to move up or, or do something else, you're going to have to interact with people. And even through emails and writing, you have to interact. And if you have an idea for some new mechanism that you want to put in, you need a way to say, oh, it's like this or in this way, it will work that way. And, you know, you need to build an analogy, which is a kind of more of a it's a comparison, but it's a little bit more of a logical argument comparison. So I, I just wanted to give you a little bit of an argument as to why this is so important and this is Sunday morning poetry is going to not, you know, be teaching you how to sell necessarily, but it'll teach you a lot about metaphors, similes, analogies, and it'll give you plenty of ammunition and language improvement to, you know, go out into the world and you'll be better with people, friends, you know, uh, relationships, all the, you know, all the things that you need to flourish in life. And most importantly, it'll give you a better internal existence. And this, I think, is the most important one and what I'm going to kind of uh, stop on. Coleridge, who is um, the he's he also wrote the lyrical ballads with Samuel Taylor with with William Wordsworth. And it is said of Coleridge that his best artistic achievement was William Wordsworth. And we're going to talk about Coleridge at some other point. But he had a really good quote about the poet. And he called, he said, the poet described an ideal perfection brings the whole, W-H-O-L-E, the whole soul of man into activity with the subordination of its faculties to each other according to their relative worth and dignity. So what is that, you know, so what that is really getting at is what the, the poet brings the whole soul of man. So not just one aspect of him. It's not just his moral abilities or his intellectual abilities, but it's how he feels and experiences, how he senses. 
one of the hallmarks of romanticism, one dominant hallmark of romanticism, which I think is one that we need to make sure we're bringing back. It's what I'm not so sold on contemporary um, poetry for because it lacks this almost every time I read it, this kind of hallmark. And it's what could be called philosophically, you know, one way of looking at it is sensationalism. Now, not sensationalism as in, you know, I saw uh, Endgame and the explosions were sensational or Infinity War. The, the war scene was sensational. Like just all my senses were, were, you know, exploded on. It was just big blockbuster spectacle. Not in that sense, but in the John Locke sense, in the sense of we have this tabula rasa mind. Remember, this is going on. John Locke is happening, you know, and his ideas are spreading around the time of the romantics, the romantic poets, including uh, our poet Wordsworth today. So we have, you know, this idea that we have a blank slate, tabula rasa. So when we're born, we don't have any sensations, we, or we don't have anything innate within us, I should say. We, should, we don't have ideas and, and concepts like words. They're not innate within us. Instead, we look out into the world and there's a, and we, senses are impressed upon our minds. And that, that's how we start to experience and feel the world. We start to make value, value judgments, evaluations of people from, from a very early, um, year, you know, a, a year in our lives, a very early time in our lives. And this is why it's so important. This is why it's so difficult sometimes if you, um, you know, a therapist and psychologists have such work cut out for them for people who have been, you know, uh, damaged or, or in other ways, you know, their, their mind has been put in disarray in some way in their youth. Because when it happens in their youth, then you evaluate the world based on that for your whole, the rest of your life. You see people who are actually trying to be nice to you um, as actually being mean because every time somebody would come up to you and say, how are you doing, little kid? Your father would snatch you and go, don't talk to those little bastards. And so you, you constantly have this really bad feeling about someone who does that. You know, and if you're, but really your father was the one who was a nasty person who hated everybody and was, you know, uh, jealous of, of, and envious of all the people's success around them. So anybody who showed any kindness, he really hated that kind of, you know, that's just one I pulled, you know, an example I pulled out of my, my head randomly. But the point is that if you, if that happens all the time in your youth, it's going to affect you obviously in the way that you look at people. So when you look at somebody who's kind, when you're 35, and it, you you are suspicious of them, and you have no reason to be suspicious of them. It goes back to that, and you need to you know untangle all the observations you've made that have gone along the way. You know, even after you left your father, and you saw someone at sixteen years old who was kind to you, but then you saw another side of them that was a little negative. So you then you know oh, more confirmation. These you know, there's no such thing. This is the birth of a cynic, right? And that's how that's what happens, or that's you know one possibility. There's a lot of ways that that can happen. It's infinite, I would say, actually, in how that type of thing can happen. But the point is that we're tabula rasa. The Romantics were very fascinated, or they were passionate about this sense perception and creating a whole new imagery for your mind. And we'll see this in the two April mornings a little bit, and also the one we're going, the poem we're going to be. Discussing next week, The Fountain, also by William Wordsworth. And then I'd also like to discuss his, um, you know, William Wordsworth is a huge figure. 
So we'll probably discuss several of his poems, although I might intersperse it with other poems so you're not just getting hit with William Wordsworth uh, every Sunday, for those who, who listen every Sunday. Um, okay, so let's go to the poem itself, and then we'll have a little bit more of a discussion. Okay, and actually, before we go, there's one thing I do. So there's um, there's a couple words that you probably have heard, but you may not 100% know the definition or, or fully the definition in the way he's using it, or at least I did not know it, so I looked it up. But um, two, I, this is a, you know, I said at the beginning, a little bit more of a complicated poem, and one of the reasons I think it's a little bit more complicated is because it is a, it does have a, a kind of a philosophical argument. So it's what could be called, in the realm of Wordsworthian um, poetry, there are the, the Lucy poems, and then this could be considered a Matthew poem. As you'll see, Matthew is a an elderly schoolmaster whom the young Wordsworth had a converse or has conversations with, and we'll see this in this poem. There's also a poem called "The Tables Turn," um, "The Tables Turned," and then of course um, the the fountain is another one that's a Matthew poem. So we're going to kind of discuss these, and one of the things that Wordsworth is really interested in is are people on the margins of our consciousness, on the margins of, you could say, in another way of looking at it, on the margins of society. But I think he, in particular, and the Romantics are more considered, are actually more concerned with people on the, the margins of our consciousness. So, for instance, you don't think about old people very often in the, the day-to-day bustle of your life, unless you're in elder care, of course. <laughs> but if you're not, it's very unlikely that when you're going off to work to, you know, sell houses or, you know, go, you know, you're a lawyer or a doctor or a dentist or whatever it is, you know, you're going, you know, any generic, um, you know, uh, um, roles as, such as that or whatever role you have, you're a plumber, I don't care. Whatever the role, it's very unlikely that on a regular basis, you're interacting with the elderly, the really old. Um, in, in the fountain, the, the Matthew is named or put a number to it, which is 72 years, which is actually not that old in our time. But in their time, I think, you know, in uh, 1802 or 1798, this is this is pretty, pretty old person. So, um, you know, picture like a 95 year old. I think that's pretty old or an 88 year old. Like that's, I think, a little bit old. So picture someone like that. So that's quite old. And except for your grandparents, you probably don't think about them much. Okay, so let's take a look at the two April mornings. And I'm going to, as usual, um, read through it. And then, you know, just one read through uh, first. And then we'll kind of go stanza by stanza and explore the poem. If you have thoughts, you know, please email me at kirkbarbera at thetroubadourmag.com. That's T-R-O-U-B-A-D. O-U-R-M-A-G.com. Wait, I messed that up. (laughs) No, 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 that's right. The the true, so it's Kirk Barbera at TroubadourMag.com. So that's correct. So, um, you know, go ahead and just email me there or you can find me on Facebook. It's uh, at TroubadourMag, you know, on on YouTube. You can find, if you look up TroubadourMag, I mean, go to TroubadourMag, just go there, email me, comment, whatever you want to do. Um, you know, I don't have text set up yet, but if you go to TroubadourMag.com, I believe, yeah, there's a place you could say, uh, you could actually send a message and it should, you know, get right to my phone. I have it on text. So I'm, I'm here for you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, so 
any thoughts you have, there's there's an infinite way ways you can you know go through this poem. But let's go through one way. So, the two April mornings by William Wordsworth. We walked along while bright and red uprose the morning sun, and Matthew stopped. He looked and said, "The will of God be done." A village schoolmaster was he, with hair of glittering gray, as blithe a man as you could see, on a spring holiday. And on that morning, through the grass and by the streaming rills, we traveled merrily to pass a day among the hills. Our work, said I, was well begun. Then from thy breast, what thought beneath so beautiful a sun, so sad a sigh has brought? A second time did Matthew stop, and fixing still his eye upon the eastern mountain top, to me he made reply. Yon cloud, with that long purple cleft, brings fresh into my mind a day like this, which I have left full thirty years behind. And just above yon slope of corn, such colors and no other, were in the sky that April morn of this the very brother. With rod and line I sued the sport which that sweet season gave, and coming to the church stopped short beside my daughter's grave. Nine summers had she scarcely seen the pride of all the vale, and then she sang she would have been a very nightingale. Six feet in earth my Emma lay, and yet I loved her more, for so it seemed, than till that day I e'er loved before. And turning from her grave, I met, beside the churchyard you, a blooming girl whose hair was wet with points of morning dew. A basket on her head she bare, her brow was smooth and white, to see a child so very fair, it was a pure delight. No fountain from its rocky cave e'er tripped with foot so free. She seemed as happy as a wave that dances on the sea. There comes from me a sigh of pain which I could ill confine. I looked at her and looked again and did not wish her mine. Matthew is in his grave, yet now methinks I see him stand as at that moment with a bow of wilding in his hand. Now, on the surface, this poem is telling a story that is somewhat simplistic, right? It's merely a young man talking to a happy old man. Blythe generally means happy, joyous. Although it can also mean, you know, come across as callous and, and indifferent is another way it's often meant. But in literature, it seems to have the definition of joyous. It comes, or it's related uh, um, in origin to the word bliss. So it has that, that sense to it. <clears throat> so he's talking to this person on a spring holiday when all of a sudden, you know, they're merrily going through the hills and they're just chatting this young person with this person that we tend to not talk to, 
right? We tend to not spend a lot of time with the old village schoolmaster, or, you know, this would be like talking to the, you know, 80 year old school teacher or the retired school teacher, I would say, who's just kind of out there. We, you know, not really someone we chat with if we're not related to them. And this person stops all of a sudden and looks out at this cloud and says, you know, this day reminds me of a day 30 years ago. And on that day 30 years ago, so when he was a much, you know, in middle age, I came to a grave that was my daughter's, and it reminded me of that. And by my daughter's grave, where my Emma lay, there was a beautiful young girl, a blooming girl whose hair was wet with points of morning dew. Now, so he's by, oh, and if you're just listening, I said beside the churchyard, you, that's a U tree, Y E W. So obviously it sounds like you, Y O U. So he sees this girl whose blooming hair was wet. So, you, you know, she's a nine year old girl, basically, or a girl around the same age as his daughter. And she, she has a basket on her head. And to see a child is beautiful. You know, it's a pure delight to see a young, beautiful child like that. No fountain from its rocky cave um, ever tripped with foot so free. She seemed as happy as a wave. You know, here's here's a simile, happy as a wave that dances. And she seemed that way. That's how she looked to him or seemed to be moving. And then there came a sigh of pain. We'll talk about this in a little bit. And so I, and he says, I do not wish her mine. And now Matthew and now it goes back at the end, the last stanza is Wordsworth or the, the narrator saying, Matthew is now dead. And now methinks I see him stand as at that moment with the bow of wilding in his hand. So the, there is a, obviously, I think, a, or I think it's obvious, a, a little bit of a complexity to the poem right there. Even though, I think there's many layers to it. The one simple layer is, you know, two people are walking. One is old, one is young. One tells the older one tells the younger one of a memory, which is a common thing. If you talk to older people, this is a common occurrence that'll happen. Um, even if you talk to like a 30 year old, like myself, like that, it'll happen. I'll tell you some stories when I was a kid or something. Right. And you know, if you're like 20 years old, so I'm the old man in that case. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you're talking to somebody, you know, toward the end of their life, and there's an indication of that here, they're, you know, they'll, they'll tell you stories at the beginning of the life. So that's a normal thing. So you have this, this occurrence, these, you know, old person telling a story to a young person. That's really all there is to it. But there's a complexity to the time, like the occurrence of time and how it's used in this poem. So, for instance, we're in the beginning, we walked along. So it's in past tense. We walked along while bright and red uprose, uh, while bright and red uprose the morning sun, and Matthew stopped, he looked and said, the will of God be done. So in the first stanza, we get this idea that these two people are walking, it's a bright sunny day, it's, it's early morning, and notice this is the beauty of poetry, is that it doesn't say it was early morning, like prose, it says while bright and red uprose the morning sun, which is a, you know, uh, an irregular way of normally talking, even though, or of normally synth uh, of putting together words, wh what's called syntax. 
but it, it makes it forces you one to listen to the sound of the words while bright and red uprose the morning sun and matthew stopped and looked and said the will of god be done so there there's a you know kind of a rhythm between uprosing you know and the sound that goes with uprose the morning sun and the gods be done the god be done um you know aspect and red and said simple simple um you know uh, uh, sounds that go alike <laughs> anyway so we walked along while bright and red so yeah, this is the first part of it so it's past tense and then a village schoolmaster was he so we got the indication that you know now that we have the whole poem in mind we know that this is actually this whole thing is being told to us by a narrator after the fact of the village schoolmaster's death and you know it's even interesting putting it you know even in our first reading or a second reading we could see a village schoolmaster was he which has a double meaning so he died is one meaning so you're no longer a schoolmaster if you died but you're also no longer a schoolmaster when you've retired so we get this sense that this is an old person you know the next line is with hair of glittering gray and it's you know told in multiple ways to kind of play with time again time and memory are critical here this is a big part of this whole story is time and and memory and this whole this whole poem as blithe a man as you could see on a spring holiday so we'll call the narrator just wordsworth so wordsworth is seeing this old man that he's talking to this person that we don't normally talk to and he was a blithe as a man as you can see on a spring so he seems in moving right now you know it's let's call him 72 or 85 you know right now today when he's remember when wordsworth is remembering this occurrence he seems like a blithe happy man on his spring holiday and yet there's something else going on internally to this young man, to this old man. Because on that morning, through the grass and by the streaming rills, rills is just like a, a you know, channel cut through the dirt or, you know, um, with water. So just like, just imagine little streamlets. When by the streaming rills, we traveled merrily to pass a day among the hills. So they're, they're on this journey together, just kind of walking in nature. And then Wordsworth says, our work, said I, was well begun. Then from thy breast, your breast, what thought beneath so beautiful a sun, so sad a sigh has brought? So Wordsworth is struck by this, the will of God be done. You know, and then you can imagine a, by the old man. Because the old man looks blithe. It's a beautiful day. You know, and that's what the young person is seeing. The young person is just, you know, we, we think young people, you know, when, when I was young, when you're young, whatever, young people do tend to be vapid. And there's not a lot there because they haven't experienced a lot yet. So, you know, I think a little bit that's going on is like Wordsworth is kind of just walking around. like, Oh, it's a beautiful day. Da, 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 da. And then out of nowhere, this old dude's like, the will of God be done. And he's like, what? <laughs> and he says, our work was well begun, then from your breath, breast, what thought beneath so beautiful a sun so sad a sigh has brought? You know, so Wordsworth is asking him, what, what caused you to say that? Where, where did that come from? Right? And then a second time, did, this is the next stanza, a second time did Matthew stop, and fixing still his eye upon the eastern mountaintop, to me he made reply. 
So again, it's really important to pay attention to the, the words that and the, the images that are being drawn up here. So Matthew had an internal reaction to something, and we're about to find out what the internal reaction is. The internal reaction is in relation to a sense in the world. Remember what I said, the hallmark of romanticism is sensationalism? So in you know, he's walking along, his external view is this blithe, happy character, you know, old man just kind of with his wilding, his stick in his hand, like da 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 everything's great. That's how he's perceived, how he's seen, how Wordsworth, you know, in his mind views this old stodgy person walking, this old schoolmaster at that time. And yet there's a whole royal uh, uh, you know, a, a volcano of emotion within him. And it's br one burst of it comes from the uh, a cloud that he sees. So to me, he made reply. Here's the next stanza. Yon, like that cloud, yon cloud with that long purple cleft brings fresh into my mind a day like this, which I have left full 30 years behind. So he's telling Wordsworth, well, the reason I said the will of God be done <clears throat> is he, in all of his experiences, in a whole lifetime, because we, again, we, we find that he died probably very soon after this encounter. And Wordsworth, remember, is maybe an old man himself. Maybe now he's able to understand this a little bit, or at least the narrator, let's say, is able to understand what's going on with this old person now that he's a little bit older. And he says, wow, there's something there that in my youth I couldn't see, but now I can see where it is. And it's the relationship between his internal world and this the external world. Okay, so Matthew saw this, this cloud and made him think of a day like this. It's a simile, right? If it has like, it's a comparison, like this. So the day is like, the day 30 years ago is compared to this day. There's a comparison here. They're, they're very similar which I have left full 30 years behind. So we're starting to be attuned to the place that Ma that uh, Matthew is telling that they are in today is similar to 30 years before. Next stanza. And just above yon slope of corn, such colors and no other, were in the sky that April morn of this the very brother. Now, this is another great uh, simile if we're starting to see the theme of comparisons and what comparisons, you know, analogies, similes, metaphors, what they're capable of and what they're not capable of. So a brother is not the it's not a copy. Even if it's a twin brother, there's differences between brothers, right? And we know that right away. And yet the way he's using it in this first sense, in our first reading and in, a, you know, the sense one if we were to say this is this is the meaning one, this is meaning two, this is meaning three, you know, of, of how this is starting to mean something, the first sense is that they are the same, right? And that he's remembering 30 years before a day that felt the same, the air breathes in the same way. There's a, a slope of corn over the hill that's very similar to the one that they have in April, um, you know, 1802 versus April 17. 72, right? So he's he's remembering those two things, and he's remembering what he was doing at that time then. 
So the next stanza is with rod and line, right? Fishing, I sued the sport which that sweet season gave. What's the sport that fishing? Rod and line. So he's fishing for something, right? He's 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 eating. It's there's something going on with the nothing in poetry is for no reason. So there's a line, there's a hook, there's you know a sinker brings it all down hook and, and, and trying to catch fish, whatever. And it's a sport. It's fun. It's a sweet season. It's enjoyable time. And yet there's something darker. So this is um, not a 30 or, you know, this is not a 50 year old man remembering something from when he was 10 or 15. This is an, you know, let's say a 90 year old man remembering or an 80 year old man remembering something from when he was 50, right? When he lost the child when he was 41, Right, so, so time gets pretty complicated here, right? So when he was, you know, in middle age, he was ha- having sport, and he was enjoying that day, the brother of the day with Wordsworth. And then when he left from fishing, and he came to a church, stopped short beside my daughter's grave. So he was enjoying the day, 30 years before, when he was reminded of you know, his daughter's grave by going to the church. So memory. So he was in, he was having a fun day and then he remembers his daughter's grave. But something fishy happened on this day. And this particular April day, the will of God be done. Nine summers had she scarcely seen. So she had only been, she had only seen nine summers. She was only nine years old. The pride of all the veil. And then she sang, she would have been a very nightingale. Now, nightingales sing, you know, um, there's there's an idea that, you know, nightingales have often been used as analogies or metaphors for poetry. Even if you don't know that, you should know that nightingales are beautiful creatures. They're like mockingbirds, right? You know, to kill a mockingbird, if you remember the, if you ever read that book, <clears throat> you you don't kill a mockingbird because all they do is sing and they're beautiful, right? Same thing with like a nightingale. You don't kill something that doesn't do anything to you except bring you pleasure and joy, right? So you should always leave those innocent creatures alone. But anyway, the point is in this relationship is that she was this beautiful bringer of joy and pleasure. Six feet in earth, my Emma lay, yet loved, and yet I loved her more. For so it seemed then till that day I error had loved before. So again, we have some more complicated emotions going on here. Is you have this old person telling a story of when he was in middle age and how before she died, and, and the person, the the child, the actual physical person of Emma, gave him a feeling that he would never love anything like this again. Or before he had never loved, Emma was the cornerstone of his cornerstone of the love that he felt in his life. But now she's dead at nine. And never forget, this is being told 30 years later. So he's still telling the story to Wordsworth. And turning from her grave, I met beside the churchyard you, Y-E-W, a blooming girl whose hair was wet with points of morning dew. So, he see he you know in a in a kind of mystical way there's this girl who's just like nature all around her she her hair is wet it's got morning dew on it so remember we're in this the sun uprose all those things the images we've been drawn that have been drawn 
for us in this poem by Wordsworth are related to the poem, <clears throat> excuse me, are related to the um, the day 30 years before. So this is all happening in, in a relationship to the day that Wordsworth is, or that Matthew is telling the story. So you have this blooming girl. So you imagine she's, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. She's around the time, the age of Emma. Is she real? Is she a memory? You know, what's the difference in this case? Because it's a memory told of a memory, in a sense. A basket on her head she bare. Her brow was smooth and white. To see a child so very fair, it was a pure delight. So, you know, again, he's telling how he felt pleasure, delight, and seeing this beautiful young girl that reminded him of his daughter as she is, you know, um, even in relation to, in geographical relation to, the grave of the daughter. So the, the daughter, his actual daughter, Emma, is no longer there. There is this beautiful young girl there that's not his daughter. Here's the next stanza. No fountain from its rocky cave Air tripped with foot so free, she seemed as happy as a wave that dances on the sea. So no fountain from its rocky cave air tripped with foot so free. So there's a lot of comparisons between this girl, who's compared to Emma, and nature. Right? She's compared to a fountain, or she's you know no fountain from its rocky cave air tripped so. She is compared, in a sense, to this fountain, but the fountain doesn't even stand a chance to, you know, show how um, free her foot was, how, you know, delightful and in this world she belongs. She moved along, you know, in the throng of this nature, of this, under this yew, in this tree, in this beautiful April day. And she seemed as happy as a wave that dances on the sea. Now we have seen, you know, so far we've had this theme that even though she seems happy, it's important to understand that we don't know that she's happy, right? This is part of, I think, what's going on in this poem is there's a, there's so many different complexities about what we can see and what we can know, right? What we can see in this person and what is actually going on internally to her. I mean, as far as the old man is concerned, as Matthew, it's very possible that she could be right next to her grave or, or in her own grave very soon as well. And then from him, there came a, you know, so this is the next stanza. There came from me a sigh of pain, which I could ill confine. I looked at her and looked again and did not wish her mine. And why doesn't he wish her his? What is what is the poem? What is Matthew trying to teach Wordsworth? This you know Matthew's a school teacher. Don't forget. What's he trying to convey? Trying to understand is that once something is lost, you can never fill it with anything. It's done. It's lost. It's gone forever. It's one of the you know one of the important tragedies of loss is that if you lose someone, you can't ever replace that person. That's it. You can find a different person but they're never going to be the same. It's never going to be 100% exactly like the child you lost. So you could have a second child, but it will not be like the first. 
And this is, is important in relation to all the similes and metaphors that we've been talking about. So, and, and the last stanza I'll just read real quick is Matthew is in his grave, yet now methinks I see him stand as at that moment with a bow of wilding on, in his hand. So we'll finish up in a second with that, with that stanza, but I just wanted you to hear it. But what similes, metaphors, and comparisons do is they, they do help you understand an idea or another object. So this summer, this, or this April day, even though I'm reading this in May, but this April, this beautiful April day with yawn cloud, purple cloud or, or cloud with purple cleft. And it's, you know, uh, um, what other imagery do you have? Like, you know, there's a, there's a beautiful mountaintop and, you know, uh, the corn and the grass and the streaming rills and all these different images and, uh, um, that are, are painted in this poem. They're all wonderful and, and they, you know, make you feel good, but there's a complexity in how those are impressing on the human, on Matthew, who has an, a whole storehouse of history, ideas, observations, experiences. And in those experiences, he remembers a particular one as we've gone through. Now, what this, I think, is trying to say, this is my view of what I think is going on with the similes here, is that Similes like these two April mornings can help you in remembering or understanding or getting a grasp on something. And yet, at the same time, there is a limit. It's not the same thing. So if I were to formulate it into something, I would say comparison is not identity. So you can compare you know, a, a child, a lost child of yours to another of your children. And, oh, yeah, she's, you know, dances just like her. She looks a lot like her. She bears the fruit on her head just like, you know, her. She's happy as a wave just like her. She She's, you know, at one in nature and the bug, you know, she's like a fairy tale where bugs and, you know, uh, uh, butterflies are coming around her and, and you know, birds are, are flocking and nightingales are singing to her. And she's so many ways. And yet she's not the same. And so when you compare something like one of my favorite comparisons in poetry is My Mind to Me a Kingdom Is, which is a poem by a guy named Edward Dyer. I always forget his first name, but D-Y-E-R. And I like that. It's it's an analogy, really. It's a metaphor, but it, the whole poem is a, an analogy between a kingdom, you know, with with big gates and if you think of like think of just simply the north and game of thrones if you do that or you know some if you're like some medieval times like you know uh, um some empire or, or you know the roman the the you know roman city is kind of an uh, a, a kingdom and you can imagine there's gates and cobblestone uh um pathways and then of course you have people going in and out you have trades people all over all over the place you have guard towers and guards with arrows and then you have a king inside. So all of those are, are details that you can bring out of this this analogy between kingdom. Because you can say there's a relationship between, you know, who are you going to let into your kingdom versus who are you not going to let into your kingdom. That's how you can relate to your mind. Who, you, What ideas, what thoughts, what, what observations, what words from people are you going to allow through the gates of your mind and which aren't you going to? So... There's a relationship. And yet, of course, there's a lot of things not in common with a kingdom. Like there's not, it's not, your mind is not actually stone. 
right? There's not a, a like an actual uh, pathway that you can see. It's just an analogy. So it, it has limits. So it can help you see and understand the mind a little bit more clearly, but it's not everything. You, you, you know, it's not exactly identity. It's not the, the whole facts. And there's something that I think is missing um, in that. And, and the, what's missing is simply just the getting to the identity um, you know, how you want to do that. There's, we could talk about that some other time. There's a lot of philosophical arguments on how you would do that. But again, this isn't to take away um, or to say that there is no purpose between metaphor analogy, you know, between comparisons and identity. Identity You still need in order to kind of go around and, and feel at, like if you ever want to approach an idea, you need to have all these different examples to go through and, to, you know, to kind of help you with them. So I wanted to end with a passage about Wordsworth and, and some things that he, he actually said, uh, you know, so a quote from him that is about what poetry does, because that's kind of what we're talking about. And the two April mornings is, I think, a, a lot about what poetry does in a certain sense, because it's about comparisons, but it, there's a complexity to it because it's also about memory. How do we remember things? What is the purpose of that memory? So we have Matthew remembering something and he, that which is a memory itself. So he's, you know, what he's remembering 30 years before is he sees this, um, you know, graveyard, which reminds him it's a memory, but it's not a complete memory. It's only a partial memory because it's not, it's why he doesn't want it to be his. The, the girl that he sees. But all the whole poem it, we find out at the end is actually a memory from Wordsworth of the narrator who's remembering Matthew, telling him the story of memory of things he remembered. So this is how you can, how a, a poet through form and through style and through words conveys a theme like memory. This is how we remember things. Is He's writing it down and telling this story, which is a story, which is a story, right? So <clears throat> the whole poem is is kind of shaping about that. It starts with them walking, and we think of it as present, but we find out it's actually after Matthew's death. So there's memory, there's imagination that's important here. I think that one of the biggest things the romantics were concerned with was how to use the imagination to create a whole new structure of uh, relationships between ideas and and you know, the things we see in our everyday lives or what might be considered concretes and abstractions. And metaphors, analogies, similes, those integrating, synthesizing, putting together through poetry is how you um, is how you think and experience the world more. One of the things that always bothers me is how, you know, people will love to travel and yet they never change, which to me is bizarre. How do you travel to another country and yet you still haven't seemed to be much different than you were before you traveled. One of the perks of traveling should be that you should absorb new culture and, you know, be more culturated, have more culture to you. And yet that rarely happens, unfortunately, I, I, in my experience. And this happens with some people. The same thing is true when you travel in these poetic and literature terms or, you know, uh, aspects. It's one of the values of literature and poetry. So here's what poet says. The poet, as Wordsworth again says, rejoices more than other men 
and the spirit of life which is in him. But besides the passion of perception, which that joy brings him, is that particular power of synthesizing perceptions which other men lack. That power of conceiving experiences in the terms of something else, of seizing and communicating analogies, of creating symbol, image, metaphor, and of associating in this way different levels and kinds of experience, so that their conjunction by some mysterious intellectual and emotional chemistry creates a new quality of experience, a new mode of being, which was not there before and which is unlike anything else. So in other words, to be someone new means you have to be able to see the world. Let me rephrase that. To literally to become a different person is it is required for your mode of being to be different. So how you are capable of viewing the world must be different. And the way that you could do this in, in the two um, um, April mornings by Wordsworth is all about that because it's an old, because of the nature of the gray haired man telling a story to somebody who's now relating the story to you like that structure you know, in and of itself, the reality of that poem in and of itself is exactly this metaphoric um, synthesizing of experiences. With And then if you, you know, look at these similes and the images that are used, it's all adding up to trying to give you to visualize them, these two people, but that they're not even there because it's actually, you know, them telling a story after Matthew's dead. So it's actually all a memory. And the fact that you can visualize all of this is, and the fact that you weren't there, and it's actually a story being told to you in a certain way by using images, metaphors, and similes, and then then to have it all be about, well, there's actually a limit to this, is a very profound philosophical argument that we could, or discussion that we could talk about forever. We could talk about, you know, famous speeches, that, that have metaphors in them or that are themselves, like the Gettysburg Address, which is, you know, it, it's taking the graveyard of all these these heroic men who died at Gettysburg and really all the men who had at that point died, the tens of thousands of men, hundreds of thousands who had died in the Civil War. And it's analogizing or, you know, making them their sacrifice in relation to the idea of this nation conceived in liberty. And if it's possible... And so these are kind of like, there's, you know, they're, they're almost, you know, the, the, the idea of the tree of liberty must be, um, you know, watered with the blood of patriots kind of idea. That it has to happen. It's part of the natural course of conceiving this liberty. And that, so that, you know, 400 word, uh, 442 or whatever it is, really short um, speech by Abraham Lincoln is itself an analogy of this grand thing. That's why it's so powerful is he doesn't really give you too many visual analogies and similes throughout it. It's actually pretty abstract language in a lot of ways, but yet because of where he is and what he, the few things he is relating of these dead men who we cannot, you know, the words we say here can, you know, will pass away. And I don't remember the exact quote at the moment, but you know, but they, their sacrifice will never fade. Right. And, and 
that the relationship between the words he's saying, consecrating the, their grave, these are all imbued with power because of the the um, the simile or the the analogy between the graves and the idea of liberty. You know what they died for. So we we have this as such a powerful tool within us, and yet we rarely strive to actually use it. You know, it's like you're um, the, if if you're you have a whole bunch of toolboxes with tools in them for fixing things around the house, but you never do it. Right, you just hire somebody to come in to do it for you all the time. Now, there, sometimes that's necessary to do that in your house because you're busy with work or something. But on the other hand, if you do that with your mind for too long, then you know, 10, 20 years later when you go to those tools, you may forget kind of how to fix certain things and you can, you can only rely on other people. So when it comes to the, the fixing, you know, using the tools in your mind, you definitely want to be doing it yourself as much as possible. And this is what literature does for you. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed Sunday Morning Poetry, The Two April Mornings by William Wordsworth. Next week, if you want to catch, you know, read this ahead of time, we're going to read The Fountain by William Wordsworth, which is kind of a comparison. It's another Matthew poem. So it's another poem with this character, Matthew. So check us out at troubadourmag.com, and we'll see you next time.